Book Eleven, Chapters One through Nine of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Eleven, Chapter One. The city of God we speak of is the same to which testimony is borne by that scripture which excels all the writings of all nations by its divine authority, and has brought under its influence all kinds of minds, and this not by a casual intellectual movement, but obviously by an express providential arrangement. For there it is written, Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. And in another psalm we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, increasing the joy of the whole earth. And a little after, in the same psalm, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God has established it for ever. And in another, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of our God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. From these and similar testimonies, all of which it were tedious to cite, we have learned that there is a city of God, and its founder has inspired us with a love which makes us covet its citizenship. To this founder of the holy city the citizens of the earthly city prefer their own gods, not knowing that he is the god of gods, not of false, that is, of impious and proud gods, who, being deprived of his unchangeable and freely communicated light, and so reduced to a kind of poverty-stricken power, eagerly grasp at their own private privileges, and seek divine honours from their deluded subjects. But of the pious and holy gods, who are better pleased to submit themselves to one, than to subject many to themselves, and who would rather worship God than be worshipped as God. But to the enemies of this city we have replied in the ten preceding books, according to our ability and the help afforded by our Lord and King. Now, recognizing what is expected of me, and not unmindful of my promise, and relying too on the same succor, I will endeavour to treat of the origin, and progress, and deserved destinies of the two cities, the earthly and the heavenly, to wit, which, as we said, are in this present world commingled, and as it were entangled together. And first I will explain how the foundations of these two cities were originally laid, in the difference that arose among the angels. CHAPTER Two. It is a great and very rare thing for a man, after he has contemplated the whole creation, corporeal and incorporeal, and has discerned its mutability, to pass beyond it, and, by the continued soaring of his mind, to attain to the unchangeable substance of God, and in that height of contemplation to learn from God himself that none but he has made all that is not of the divine essence. For God speaks with a man not by means of some audible creature dinning in his ears, so that atmospheric vibrations connect him that makes with him that hears the sound, nor even by means of a spiritual being with the semblance of a body, such as we see in dreams or similar states. For even in this case he speaks as if to the ears of the body, because it is by means of the semblance of a body he speaks, and with the appearance of a real interval of space. For visions are exact representations of bodily objects." Not by these, then, does God speak, but by the truth itself, if any one is prepared to hear with the mind rather than with the body. For he speaks to that part of man which is better than all else that is in him, and than which God himself alone is better. 
For since man is most properly understood, or, if that cannot be, then at least believed, to be made in God's image, no doubt it is that part of him by which he rises above those lower parts he has in common with the beasts, which brings him nearer to the supreme. But since the mind itself, though naturally capable of reason and intelligence, is disabled by besotting and inveterate vices, not merely from delighting and abiding in, but even from tolerating his unchangeable light, until it has been gradually healed and renewed and made capable of such felicity, it had in the first place to be impregnated with faith, and so purified and that in this faith it might advance the more confidently towards the truth, the truth itself, God, God's Son, assuming humanity without destroying his divinity, established and founded this faith, that there might be a way for man to man's God through a God-man. For this is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. For it is as man that he is the mediator and the way." Since, if the way lieth between him who goes and the place whither he goes, there is hope of his reaching it. But if there be no way, or if he know not where it is, what boots it to know whither he should go? Now the only way that is infallibly secured against all mistakes is when the very same person is at once God and man, God our end, man our way. CHAPTER three. This mediator, having spoken what he judged sufficient first by the prophets, then by his own lips, and afterwards by the apostles, has besides produced the scripture which is called canonical, which has paramount authority, and to which we yield assent in all matters of which we ought not to be ignorant, and yet cannot know of ourselves. For if we attain the knowledge of present objects by the testimony of our own senses, whether internal or external, then, regarding objects remote from our own senses, we need others to bring their testimony, since we cannot know them by our own, and we credit the persons to whom the objects have been or are sensibly present. Accordingly, as in the case of visible objects which we have not seen, we trust those who have, and likewise with all sensible objects, so in the case of things which are perceived by the mind and spirit, that is, which are remote from our own interior sense, it behooves us to trust those who have seen them set in that incorporeal light, or abidingly contemplate them. CHAPTER four. Of all visible things the world is the greatest, of all invisible the greatest is God. But that the world is, we see, that God is, we believe. That God made the world we can believe from no one more safely than from God himself. But where have we heard him? Nowhere more distinctly than in the holy scriptures, where his prophet said, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Was the prophet present when God made the heavens and the earth? No. But the wisdom of God, by whom all things were made, was there, and wisdom insinuates itself into holy souls, and makes them the friends of God and his prophets, and noiselessly informs them of his works. They are taught also by the angels of God who always behold the face of the Father, and announce his will to whom it befits. Of these prophets was he who said and wrote, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so fit a witness was he of God, that the same Spirit of God who revealed these things to him, enabled him also so long before to predict that our faith also would be forthcoming. But why did God choose then to create the heavens and earth which up to that time he had not made? If they who put this question wish to make out that the world is eternal and without beginning, and that consequently it has not been made by God, they are strangely deceived, and rave in the incurable madness of impiety. 
For though the voices of the prophets were silent, the world itself, by its well-ordered changes and movements, and by the fair appearance of all visible things, bears a testimony of its own, both that it has been created, and also that it could not have been created save by God, whose greatness and beauty are unutterable and invisible. As for those who own, indeed, that it was made by God, and yet ascribe to it not a temporal but only a creational beginning, so that in some scarcely intelligible way the world should always have existed a created world, they make an assertion which seems to them to defend God from the charge of arbitrary hastiness, or of suddenly conceiving the idea of creating the world as a quite new idea, or of casually changing his will, though he be unchangeable. But I do not see how this supposition of theirs can stand in other respects, and chiefly in respect of the soul. For if they contend that it is co-eternal with God, they will be quite at a loss to explain whence there has accrued to it new misery, which through a previous eternity had not existed. For if they said that its happiness and misery ceaselessly alternate, they must say further that this alternation will continue for ever whence will result this absurdity, that though the soul is called blessed, it is not so in this that it foresees its own misery and disgrace. And yet if it does not foresee it, and supposes that it will be neither disgraced nor wretched, but always blessed, then it is blessed because it is deceived, and a more foolish statement one cannot make. But if their idea is that the soul's misery has alternated with its bliss during the ages of the past eternity, but that now, when once the soul has been set free, it will return henceforth no more to misery, they are nevertheless of opinion that it has never been truly blessed before, but begins at last to enjoy a new and uncertain happiness. That is to say, they must acknowledge that some new thing, and that an important and signal thing, happens to the soul which never in a whole past eternity happened to it before. And if they deny that God's eternal purpose included this new experience of the soul, they deny that he is the author of its blessedness, which is unspeakable impiety. If, on the other hand, they say that the future blessedness of the soul is the result of a new decree of God, how will they show that God is not chargeable with that mutability which displeases them? Further, if they acknowledge that it was created in time, but will never perish in time, that it has, like number, a beginning but no end, and that therefore, having once made trial of misery, and been delivered from it, it will never again return thereto, they will certainly admit that this takes place without any violation of the immutable counsel of God. Let them then in like manner believe regarding the world that it too could be made in time, and yet that God, in making it, did not alter his eternal design. CHAPTER five. Next, we must see what reply can be made to those who agree that God is the creator of the world, but have difficulties about the time of its creation, and what reply also they can make to difficulties we might raise about the place of its creation. For as they demand why the world was created then, and no sooner, we may ask why it was created just here where it is, and not elsewhere. For if they imagine infinite spaces of time before the world, during which God could not have been idle, in like manner they may conceive outside the world infinite realms of space, in which, if any one says that the Omnipotent cannot hold his hand from working, will it not follow that they must adopt Epicurus's dream of innumerable worlds, with this difference only, that he asserts that they are formed and destroyed by the fortuitous movements of atoms, while they will hold that they are made by God's hand, if they maintain that throughout the boundless immensity of space, stretching interminably in every direction round the world, God cannot rest, and that the worlds which they suppose him to make cannot be destroyed. 
For here the question is with those who, with ourselves, believe that God is spiritual, and the creator of all existences but himself. As for others, it is a condescension to dispute with them on a religious question, for they have acquired a reputation only among men who pay divine honors to a number of gods, and have become conspicuous among the other philosophers for no other reason than that, though they are still far from the truth, they are near it in comparison with the rest. While these, then, neither confine in any place, nor limit, nor distribute the divine substance, but, as is worthy of God, own it to be holy, though spiritually present, everywhere, will they perchance say that this substance is absent from such immense spaces outside the world, and is occupied in one only, and that a very little one compared with the infinity beyond, the one, namely, in which is the world? I think they will not proceed to this absurdity." Since they maintain that there is but one world, of vast material bulk, indeed, yet infinite, and in its own determinate position, and that this was made by the working of God, let them give the same account of God's resting in the infinite times before the world as they give of his resting in the infinite spaces outside of it. And as it does not follow that God set the world in the very spot it occupies, and no other by accident, rather than by divine reason, although no human reason can comprehend why it was so set, and though there was no merit in the spot chosen to give it the precedence of infinite others, so neither does it follow that we should suppose that God was guided by chance when he created the world in that and no earlier time, although previous times had been running by during an infinite past, and though there was no difference by which one time could be chosen in preference to another. But if they say that the thoughts of men are idle when they conceive infinite places, since there is no place beside the world, we reply that by the same showing it is vain to conceive of the past times of God's rest, since there is no time before the world. CHAPTER six. For if eternity and time are rightly distinguished by this, that time does not exist without some movement and transition, while in eternity there is no change, who does not see that there could have been no time had not some creature been made, which by some motion could give birth to change, the various parts of which motion and change, as they cannot be simultaneous, succeed one another, and thus in these shorter or longer intervals of duration time would begin? Since, then, God, in whose eternity is no change at all, is the creator and ordainer of time, I do not see how he can be said to have created the world after spaces of time had elapsed, unless it be said that prior to the world there was some creature by whose movement time could pass. And if the sacred and infallible scriptures say that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in order that it may be understood that he had made nothing previously, for if he had made anything before the rest, this thing would be rather said to have been made in the beginning, then assuredly the world was made not in time, but simultaneously with time. For that which is made in time is made both after and before some time, after that which is past, before that which is future. But none could then be passed, for there was no creature by whose movements its duration could be measured. But simultaneously with time the world was made, if in the world's creation change and motion were created, as seems evident from the order of the first six or seven days. For in these days the morning and evening are counted, until on the sixth day all things which God then made were finished, and on the seventh the rest of God was mysteriously and sublimely signalized. What kind of days these were, it is extremely difficult, or perhaps impossible for us to conceive, and how much more to say. CHAPTER Seven. 
We see indeed that our ordinary days have no evening but by the setting, and no morning but by the rising of the sun. But the first three days of all were passed without sun, since it is reported to have been made on the fourth day. And first of all, indeed, light was made by the word of God, and God, we read, separated it from the darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness night. But what kind of light that was, and by what periodic movement it made evening and morning, is beyond the reach of our senses, neither can we understand how it was, and yet must unhesitatingly believe it. For either it was some material light, whether proceeding from the upper parts of the world, far removed from our sight, or from the spot where the sun was afterwards kindled, or, under the name of light, the holy city was signified, composed of holy angels and blessed spirits, the city of which the apostle says, Jerusalem which is above is our eternal mother in heaven, and in another place, for ye are all the children of the light, and the children of the day, we are not of the night, nor of darkness." Yet in some respects we may appropriately speak of a morning and evening of this day also. For the knowledge of the creature is, in comparison with the knowledge of the Creator, but a twilight, and so it dawns and breaks into morning when the creature is drawn to the praise and love of the Creator, and night never falls when the Creator is not forsaken through love of the creature. In fine, Scripture, when it would recount those days in order, never mentions the word night. It never says, Night was, but the evening and the morning were the first day, so of the second and the rest. And indeed the knowledge of created things contemplated by themselves is, so to speak, more colourless than when they are seen in the wisdom of God, as in the art by which they were made. Therefore evening is a more suitable figure than night, and yet, as I said, morning returns when the creature returns to the praise and love of the Creator. When it does so in the knowledge of itself, that is the first day, when in the knowledge of the firmament, which is the name given to the sky between the waters above and those beneath, that is the second day, when in the knowledge of the earth and the sea and all things that grow out of the earth, that is the third day, when in the knowledge of the greater and less luminaries and all the stars, that is the fourth day, when in the knowledge of all animals that swim in the waters and that fly in the air, that is the fifth day, when in the knowledge of all animals that live on the earth, and of man himself, that is the sixth day. CHAPTER Eight. When it is said that God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and hallowed it, we are not conceived of this in a childish fashion, as if work were a toil to God, who spake and it was done, spake by the spiritual and eternal, not audible and transitory word. But God's rest signifies the rest of those who rest in God, as the joy of a house means the joy of those in the house who rejoice, though not the house, but something else causes the joy. How much more intelligible is such phraseology, then, if the house itself, by its own beauty, makes the inhabitants joyful? For in this case we not only call it joyful by that figure of speech in which the thing containing is used for the thing contained, as when we say, the theatres applaud, the meadows low, meaning that the men in the one applaud, and the oxen in the other low, but also by that figure in which the cause is spoken of as if it were the effect, as when a letter is said to be joyful because it makes its readers so. Most appropriately, therefore, the sacred narrative states that God rested, meaning thereby that those rest who are in him, and whom he makes to rest. And this the prophetic narrative promises also to the men to whom it speaks, and for whom it was written, that they themselves, after those good works which God does in and by them, if they have managed by faith to get near to God in this life, shall enjoy in him eternal rest. 
This was prefigured to the ancient people of God by the rest enjoined in their Sabbath law, of which, in its own place, I shall speak more at large. CHAPTER Nine. At present, since I have undertaken to treat of the origin of the holy city, and first of the holy angels who constitute a large part of this city, and indeed the more blessed part, since they have never been expatriated, I will give myself to the task of explaining, by God's help, and as far as seems suitable, the scriptures which relate to this point. Where scripture speaks of the world's creation, it is not plainly said whether or when the angels were created. But if mention of them is made, it is implicitly under the name of heaven, when it is said, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or perhaps rather under the name of light, of which presently. But that they were wholly omitted, I am unable to believe, because it is written that God on the seventh day rested from all his works which he had made. And this very book itself begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, so that before heaven and earth God seems to have made nothing. Since, therefore, he began with the heavens and the earth, and the earth itself, as Scripture adds, was at first invisible and formless, light being as yet not made, and darkness covering the face of the deep, that is to say, covering an undefined chaos of earth and sea, for where light is not, darkness must needs be. And then, when all things which are recorded to have been completed in six days were created and arranged, how should the angels be omitted as if they were not among the works of God, from which on the seventh day he rested? Yet, though the fact that the angels are the work of God is not omitted here, it is indeed not explicitly mentioned, but elsewhere Holy Scripture asserts it in the clearest manner. For in the hymn of the three children in the furnace it was said, O all ye works of the Lord, bless ye the Lord! And among these works, mentioned afterwards in detail, the angels are named. And in the psalm it is said, Praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels, praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon, praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Here the angels are most expressly and by divine authority said to have been made by God, for of them, among the other heavenly things, it is said, He commanded, and they were created. Who then will be bold enough to suggest that the angels were made after the six days' creation? If any one is so foolish, his folly is disposed of by a scripture of like authority, where God says, When the stars were made, the angels praised me with a loud voice. The angels therefore existed before the stars, and the stars were made the fourth day. Shall we then say that they were made the third day? Far from it, for we know what was made that day. The earth was separated from the water, and each element took its own distinct form, and the earth produced all that grows on it. On the second day, then? Not even on this, for on it the firmament was made between the waters above and beneath, and was called heaven, in which firmament the stars were made on the fourth day. There is no question, then, that if the angels are included in the works of God during these six days, they are that light which was called day, and whose unity Scripture signalizes by calling that day not the first day, but one day. For the second day, the third, and the rest are not other days, but the same one day is repeated to complete the number six or seven, so that there should be knowledge both of God's works and of his rest. 
For when God said, Let there be light, and there was light, if we are justified in understanding in this light the creation of the angels, then certainly they were created partakers of the eternal light, which is the unchangeable wisdom of God, by which all things were made, and whom we call the only begotten Son of God. So that they, being illumined by the light that created them, might themselves become light, and be called day, in participation of that unchangeable light and day which is the word of God, by whom both themselves and all else were made. The true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. This light lighteth also every pure angel, that he may be light not in himself, but in God, from whom, if an angel turn away, he becomes impure, as are all those who are called unclean spirits, and are no longer light in the Lord, but darkness in themselves, being deprived of the participation of light eternal. For evil has no positive nature, but the loss of good has received the name evil. End of Book 11, Chapters 1-9 through 9. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org